All right. Well, if you're new here and we've never met before, my name is Tony Boscarino. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are continuing our series called Praying with Paul, where we are taking four weeks to look at Paul's prayer to the early church. And so just as a recap, in week one, we looked at Paul's prayer to the church in Ephesus. And we saw his heart for them simply to grow in their understanding of who God was. His prayer was that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to be able to understand more about God and also understand the incomparably great power for us who believe through the Holy Spirit in us. And then last week, we looked at Paul's second prayer to the church in Ephesus. And he was praying that really Jesus would make his home in the hearts of the believers. We talked about how when we trust in Jesus, when someone opens their heart to Jesus, he moves in and he is there for a purpose, to remodel, to change, to form us into the image of himself so that we could be who God has always created us to be. This week, we are leaving Ephesus and taking a trip over to Philippi. So we're going to be in the book of Philippians as we're going to be this week looking at Paul's prayer to that church. And as we're going to see today, the Philippian church was a church that Paul dearly, dearly loved. These people had partnered with him so well in ministry for years, and his heart's desire was simply this, that the church would grow in how to live a life of love that pleases the Lord, that the church would grow to live a life of love that pleases the Lord. And so that's really where we're going to look at today. Because uh, when you take into account our current culture, when you take into account the world that we live in, that prayer to live a life of love that pleases the Lord is as relevant for them as it is for us today in 2021. So as we dive in this morning, let's really have a heart to grasp what Paul is praying to the church so that we can more importantly grasp God's desire for us here today at Riverview in 2021. So before we really dive into the passage, let's pray and just ask the Holy Spirit to have his way in us. Heavenly Father, I humbly come before you today, God. Um, Lord, all these the tech issues we're facing today, Lord, things are not working. But I thank you that in the name of Jesus, you are good, you are faithful, you are trustworthy, you are true, and we are your people gathered together because we want to connect our hearts with you. We want to hear from your word. We want to be encouraged. We want to be challenged by what you have to say. And so, Lord, above all else, may this day be about us connecting with you and receiving the life that's in your word. Father, also, I know that if it's just my words no one's heart's going to be changed. No one's life's going to be transformed. And so, God, in the name of Jesus, just speak through me. Um, empower my words that they would be yours and that uh, we would have an open heart to hear all you have to say to us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we're going to be in the book of Philippians, but before we dive into it, it's really important for us to understand the context of who he is writing to. So Philippi was a prosperous city at the time, and geographically, it was on the coast of ancient Macedonia, which would be modern-day Greece today. It was also a very unique town at this point in history because it was a Roman colony. So what's interesting about Philippi is that it was filled with retired military men who had been given land in the vicinity, in the vicinity for their service to Rome. 
And so it's a bunch of military people that are living there. And so they were given land, and then they were also there to kind of serve as this military presence in this frontier city, which was so far away from where Rome was actually located. Biblical scholars would actually say that Philippi was kind of like a mini Rome. The architecture looked like Rome. People spoke like the Romans, meaning that they spoke Latin at this time. What was also interesting about Philippi was that if you were a citizen of Philippi, that also made you an official citizen of Rome, which meant that there were a lot of privileges that came with that title. And so people were proud. They were proud of their city, proud to be Romans. And this is where God decides to plant the church through Paul. And how the church gets off the ground is incredible. So I want to start there at the very beginning. All right, so this is a flyover version. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. I'd encourage you to do it this past week, but this is how it happens. So Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. He wants to go to a certain place. It's not working out. It doesn't feel like God's leading him there. And he has a vision at night where this guy, he sees this guy, and he's from Macedonia, which is the area where Philippi is, and he sees this vision, and this guy's saying, Paul, come over and help us. Paul takes that as a very clear sign that he should probably go there. God gives him a vision. So he gets up with a couple of his friends, and they head to Philippi. Now, they're in Philippi, and then they see this group of women that are praying kind of by this this river area. And what they do is Paul shares the gospel, and this woman named Lydia, Lydia opens up her heart to receive the truth of Jesus. And she's really the first convert to the, first in Phil- the, the, the church in Philippi, and that's how it starts. Then she receives Jesus, her whole household is baptized, and the church is beginning to grow. After that, Paul and Silas, which is a friend of his, they're doing ministry together, they spend time in Philippi, and they're doing amazing things. They're casting out demons, they're preaching the gospel, they're helping people know who Jesus is, and it's causing this uproar within the, within the town of Philippi. And people are getting really upset. People are saying, these guys, they're coming in, they're causing all these issues, they're talking about things that we don't know, new customs, and what eventually happens is that Paul and Silas are stripped they're beaten, and they're thrown into prison. Now, here's where things get really interesting. It's so cool to read about this. So in prison, they've been beat up really bad. They're bloodied, and their choice, what they want to do in that moment is to worship Jesus, to sing out to God for how great he is, even in the midst of their situation. So they're worshiping, they're praying, and then Acts 16 talks about this huge earthquake takes place so powerful that all the doors on all of the, you know, the prison doors are flung open. So at this point, the jailer, uh, you know, over the prison, he's about to kill himself. He thinks the prisoners are all going to leave. Paul shouts out, wait, don't do it. Don't do it. We're all still here. This guy talks to Paul, and then he realizes that Paul knows the one true, real God. He accepts Christ. His whole family is baptized, and that is how the church starts in Philippi. It is exciting. So these are people that Paul dearly loved. God was working powerfully there. And so he spends more time in Philippi. And then 10 years later is when he actually writes the letter of Philippians, which is what we're going to read right now. So Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 3. This is what he says. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul is saying every time that he thinks of these people in Philippi, his heart is full. 
And he has so much joy within him. Why? Because of their partnership in the gospel. Now, the word partnership is this Greek word, koinonia. And what it really means is like a deep spiritual connection. It's more than just like we are working together. It's like being one in mind and heart. And that's how we felt with the church, that there was this common vision that they truly desired for people to know Jesus, grow in a relationship with him, and they've been partnering with Paul since day one. And they really have since day one. I talked about Lydia, the first convert um, to Christianity. Once she receives Jesus, gets baptized, she is a wealthy woman. She was selling purple cloth, lots of money, big house. She invites Paul and all his companions to stay with her. And so she provides food and lodging for the whole time they're in Philippi so that they can just freely meet the spiritual needs of the people in the area. So from day one, they're partnering. Then as you read more through scripture, you'll see that Paul actually talks about the church in Philippi as this like model church that's been given this incredible grace of giving. So through the history of the church, they're always financially and practically helping Paul in his ministry, even up until the day he writes this letter. Because if you read more in Philippians, it talks about this guy named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was in the church in Philippi, and the church actually sent him to Rome, miles and miles away, with special gifts to take care of Paul under Roman imprisonment. So yes, this church has been walking with Paul faithfully the entire time, and he deeply cares for them. So let's go on. He says in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So he's writing to the church, he's encouraging them that God is going to finish his work in them. Now, Paul could solely be referring to the work of partnering with him and sharing the gospel. But every single commentary that I read this week talked about what he was actually doing is encouraging them in their work, their walk with God and what God was doing in them. So Paul, through this verse, is actually telling the church in Philippi that God is the one that saved you, that God is transforming you, and that God will eventually finish his work in you. And it's really important for us to understand that. God started the work, he's still working with us, and he will finish it. And this would have been extremely encouraging for the church in Philippi, and it should be extremely encouraging for us too, because it's powerful if we let this grasp our heart. So let me explain what's going on here. Let me ask you a question. Who has ever felt like a huge failure in their walk with God? I mean, I have. I've definitely felt like that before. Ever find it really hard to not complain or gossip about an issue instead of talking it over with those directly related? I do. Um, do you ever find it really hard to forgive someone even when you know that the Lord is leading you to that? Yes. Do you ever beat yourself up for falling into lustful desires or indulging yourself in whatever, like eating too much food, spending too much money, watching too much TV, wasting too much time? ever just felt overwhelmed with a pressure to live like Jesus, right? My hand is totally up in the air because I struggle with all that stuff too. If you're like me, I would encourage you in your Bibles to underline, highlight, and circle Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. This is actually one of the first verses that I memorized when I started really like seeking Jesus in my life about 17 years ago. 
And it's one that I'm so glad I memorized because I stand on it often. I always go back to this verse because I have this problem, maybe some of you do too, that I have a tendency to magnify my own actions over what Jesus has done for me. And so here's a little personal confession time. I am a rule follower. I've always been. I can't change it. My wife is not. It causes some friction. You know, whatever. So this is how this works out. In my walking with Jesus, my rule-following tendencies can normally lead me down two bad paths. One is pride, and one is shame. Because I feel great when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and that's where the pride comes in. And I beat myself up when I feel like I failed, and that's where the shame comes in. Either way, I'm thinking way too much about my own actions. But Paul here reminds the church and us that it is really God who drew me to himself. It is really God who is transforming me, and God will finish the work he started within me and within you if you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, do I have the role to play? Yes, I do. Do I have a role to play in sanctification, which is this theological word which basically means just becoming like Jesus? Yes, I do have a role to play, and so do you. We need to surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need to be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. But in the end, our trust has to be in him doing his work in us. And I love this quote um, from pastor, and his Christian writer, his name's Kent Hughes, and I feel like it really just explains this. This is a man who walked intimately with the Lord for many, many years. And he says, as I reflect on my 50 years in Christ, it is indeed God who has kept me. It is not my grip on God that made the difference, but his grip on me. I'm not confident in my goodness. I'm not confident in my character. I'm not confident in my history. I'm not confident in my perseverance, but I am confident in God. And that is where we all need to be. God, in God, is where confidence needs to lie. So really, remember, you know, if you're feeling shameful, weighed down, feeling like a failure, this verse, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. There's power in us holding on to that scripture. So let's go on to see what else he has to say. Verse 7. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And again, this is his heart for the church. And I love how he says, you know, he carries them in his heart. So wherever he goes, they are going with him. Whether he is sitting in prison, which is where he's writing this letter from, or he is out preaching, confirming, defending the gospel, they are with him in mind and heart. They are with him in grace. They are under the same Lord. We are in this together. And Paul's so affectionate to this church. This is one of the most personal lines to any church that he writes to. I mean, really, like if you look at that, he says, God can testify. He's basically saying, if you could ask God, he would tell you how much I actually love you. I'm loving you like Christ does. His heart is so much for these people. So it's here out of these deep feelings of love for these people that he finally gets to his prayer. In verse 9, read this. It says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more 
and knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So there's a lot there. Let's break this down. First, he says that your love may abound more and more. The word abound means overflow. So what I want you to think in your mind is like a champagne bottle that's been shaken up and it's about ready just to burst everywhere. This is the kind of love that he wants to grow within the church at Philippi and God wants to grow within us. This kind of love that just wells up that we can't contain and that just spills over into those that are around us. So he wants that love to spill over, but he doesn't want them simply to have kind of an empty, fluffy, like anything goes, you know, just lots of emotion kind of love. He desires for them to have a true love that stems from knowledge and depth of insight. And so the word that Paul uses there for knowledge in Greek, it's only used in the New Testament to talk about spiritual knowledge. It's not used anywhere else. And so he's talking about loving them with a knowledge of who God is. Loving people with a knowledge of God's character, his truth, his ways, his gospel, That's the love that he's calling them to have for those around them. And here's the point. Love, real love, must be grounded in truth. Real love must be grounded in truth. And this is important to understand. Um, I really like how theologian Tony Morita, he stresses this point. He says this. He says, love is rooted in the knowledge of God. Otherwise, we can't know how to love appropriately. In our day, people want to separate knowledge of God's word from love. Love today is more associated with tolerance and feelings than with truth and righteousness. Many operate by, if it feels right, then it's acceptable. But love must be tied to truth for it to be distinctly Christian love. And as followers of Christ, we want to love with distinctly Christian love. That is our goal. We want to love with a love that is honest and true, a love that is deep, like a love that carries weight to it. That's the kind of love that we want to have. And this type of love is so different from kind of like the cheap and empty love that we so often see in the world around us. And unfortunately, I think that people have confused loving someone with pleasing someone. We've confused loving someone with pleasing someone, and they are not the same thing. For a recovering people pleaser uh, like myself, this one is really hard for me, just being honest with you. Like, I do deeply care for people, and I often am tempted to confuse loving them with pleasing them and just approving of what they are doing. But that isn't biblical love, because there's no real truth, there's no real knowledge of God in that. And the problem with this mindset for Christians is that we can, like, love someone straight to hell. We can love someone straight to hell, to an eternal separation from God because we never actually took the opportunity to tell them about the gospel, never took the opportunity to love them in the knowledge of God. And so here's what everyone needs to know. Everyone needs to know that there's one powerful, holy, awesome, just God who is the creator of all things, And because of his justice, he requires that every single one of our sins be paid for. And there are only two options of payment 
that this holy, awesome, powerful God will take. Only two options. The first is that we pay for our own sin and receive the punishment of God for our sin for all eternity. That's option number one. Option number two is that Jesus pays for all of our sin with his death on the cross as we receive him into our lives and trust him as our Lord and Savior. And here's the good news of the gospel, is that God in heaven lovingly provided for us Jesus because he didn't desire option number one. He didn't desire option number one, so he gave us option number two. He provided a way through Jesus that whoever would believe and trust in him would not perish, pay for their own sin, but have eternal life in the presence of a loving and good God. This is love that Christians are supposed to share. This is true love rooted in the knowledge of God, his ways, his purposes, and his gospel. And I want to challenge you. I mean, Jesus showed this kind of love. If you were to read through the gospels, which I would love for you all to do, and specifically look at how Jesus interacted with people that were far from the Lord, what you're going to see is that people were attracted to him. People felt incredible love coming from him, but yet he also spoke the truth. He said, you know, go sin no more. There was this idea that Jesus, like he talks about in John, that he came full of grace and truth. He came with this love that was just pouring out of him, but yet it was a true love that comes with the knowledge of God. But it is really hard. It is really hard to love people with this like knowledge of God and how do we do that, which is really what Paul's getting at. Because, I mean, if you're like me, there are times where I feel like God lays someone in my heart. Maybe it's an unbeliever. Maybe it's someone who's a Christian, but they are totally walking away from God's plan for their lives or choosing their own way. And it's so hard for me in that moment to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I love this person with truth? How do I love them with grace? It's really difficult. And that's what Paul's getting at when he talks about depth of insight, like it talked about in verse 9. That's that idea, depth of insight, or your translation may say discernment. He is praying that the Lord would grow their love with knowledge of what is right and also help them to discern what is best in a given situation. That's what we're supposed to get from that. Really what he's talking about is application. Like, how do I apply this love in the context of all these people that surround me in my life? How do I do that? What's interesting is that like, Paul, he doesn't specify in this passage who to love. Like, he could be talking about loving God. He could be talking about loving unbelievers, like I mentioned earlier. He could be talking about people loving each other within the church of God. He could be talking about those people. He's probably talking about all of them. So it's not that he so much is worried about who we're loving. It's more how we are loving them. That in whatever situation around whomever that we find ourselves, that we would be able to discern in the moment how to love them and how to do what is best. So for us, this prayer could be like, God, grow my love through knowledge of you. And help me to know how to best love my neighbor who just lost their spouse of 40 years. Help me to know how to love them with truth and knowledge of you in that moment. Or God, help me to care for the kid down the street that I see all the time that's devastated because of his parents' divorce. Like God, help me to love him in a way that is about your truth, that he, would, he or she would hear that. Or how do I love my coworker? Who is someone, they're spiritual, they talk about spiritual things, they're into spirit guides, they're reading tarot cards, but they don't actually know the Holy Spirit. 
They don't actually know you as the real God. They don't actually understand Jesus. Help me to love them like you want me to in the midst of this situation. So whatever the situation is, help me to grow in a knowledge of you so that I could live a life of real Christ-like love in whatever my context is, whoever is surrounding me. So he prays for their love to grow in knowledge and depth of insight. And then in verse 10, we read it already, but let's go back to it. Verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So I'm reading out of the NIV, and it says, discern what is best. Maybe your translation says, approve what is excellent. I was reading a bunch of different translations, and one that I I just loved how it worded it was the New Living Translation. And in this verse, it just says, for I want you to know what really matters. I want you to know what truly matters. What Paul is getting at here is his desire for them to know God, his ways, his purposes, his heart, and that they would have an insight into how knowing who he is can then impact their everyday life so that they could live for what truly matters. That's his heart for the church in Philippi. That's God's heart for us. Really, it's that they would live for him and love like him. So as the verse says, that they could be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, when you read pure and blameless, that kind of sounds a lot like perfect and sinless, doesn't it? It did to me when I read it, but I don't know if that's exactly what Paul is saying. Actually, I know it's not because I did a lot of research and study on this. So pure, the word that Paul uses for pure, what it actually means is sincere, without hidden motives, no pretense. That's what we want to think when we hear pure. So it's no hidden motives, no pretense. It's, it's that I'm not faking it. God desires that there is a sincerity to his people, to who we are in the lives that we lead. It's choosing to be real and authentic about who we are and where we are. So what we're talking about when we say pure is just being honest with others about our mistakes. It's being quick to apologize to people. It's being quick to run to Jesus and ask his forgiveness and receive his love when we've done something that isn't right and allowing people to see that even happening within us. It's being your real authentic self, you in process as you learn to follow Jesus. That's what he's going for, for pure, that, you know, it's who I am. It's an openness to my life that I'm sharing with other people. And then he uses the word blameless, which also is maybe different than you're thinking. Blameless is the Greek word aprokopos, and it has to do in this context with being blameless in the sense of like not offending or not really causing someone to stumble. Okay, that's what blameless means. So really it's this biblical idea of living your life above reproach. To be blameless in this context is to go before God and say, God, like, search my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting, like Psalm 139. It's really like, God, have I, have I hurt someone? Have I offended someone? Have I wronged someone? And then if he's speaking to your heart, then it's choosing humility to then go to that person and say, you know what? I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's wrong. That's not who I want to be. I'm trying to grow with Jesus, and I'm not perfect. But God's going to complete me one day, but right now... I'm not perfect. And you're just living your life out there. It's, it's basically like you're going to a person because God leads you and you're choosing humility. You're asking forgiveness, taking care of the situation so that like blame can't come upon you, right? So you've dealt with it. So in that sense, you would be blameless. 
Paul wants the church, and God wants us to grow in our knowledgeable and discerning love so that our motives are pure, without pretense, so that we live in a way that doesn't cause others to stumble because of how we live our lives. That's what he's getting at with that idea of pure and blameless. So Paul ends in uh, verse 11, and he says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So Paul ends this prayer really reminding the believers that their righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. Like, yes, I've talked about, we have a role to play. Every single one of us are called to deny ourselves, follow Jesus, listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, go after God. But ultimately, our righteousness, our right standing for God does not depend on how well I did or didn't do in a certain day. My righteousness before God is dependent upon what Jesus did, his perfect life that he lived in my place, his death that he died to pay for my sin. And so forever, if you are in Christ, you are shining with the righteousness of Jesus before God. And he wants to remind the church of that. It's really that, that back to, you know, God's working in you. God is continuing. God started it. He's working in you. He will carry it on to completion. It's about God working in and through you. And so that's really Paul's heart for the church in, in Philippi, is to understand, to grow in their knowledge of what true God love is like, what it means to love people within the knowledge of God, and then to know how to live that out in their everyday lives. And so that's, that's really the heart of his prayer. And so I, I want to challenge you in three different ways um, that I was thinking about going through this, this passage, and Jess was helping me think through a lot of these things through, um, too. But the first thing is Paul opens the letter and he just thanks God for the people in Philippi. These people that have walked with him, encouraged him, you know, financially supported him. And I'd love for all of us this week to just spend some time thanking God for those Christian men and women in our lives who have painted a picture of Jesus and got us hungry for more of Jesus. So spend time thanking God for those people that have encouraged you in your walk. The second thing is pray what Paul prays. God, grow my love in the knowledge of you. Like, I don't want to just love with an empty, fluffy, meaning nothing love. I want to love with a true love that is grounded in you and who you say you are. And then the last thing is I want to challenge you to do this. Like, pray about a specific person that God would want you to love like that. You know, pray this week, God, who do you want me to really just intentionally step into their lives and love with the knowledge of God. Who is that person? And then help me to do that with your love. That's a challenge for this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I love looking at Paul's prayers because he's talking to real people that are living a real life, that are trying to walk with you and follow you. And he just steps in and says, you know what, the power is found in God to form you, change you, transform you. The power is in God to lead you, to have an impact in the lives of those around you. And so Lord, we just ask the same thing that Paul prayed. We pray that you would just give us knowledge of your love. Give us discernment to know how to live this love out with those that are in our lives. God, ultimately, we want your will for us. We lay our lives down at your feet, surrender to you. Use us and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.